0: Nehemiah 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our our vineyards. That's not even the most tricky word in the passage. And our vineyards. Now, our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry. When I heard their outcry and these words, I took counsel with myself when I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, "'Will we restore these and require nothing from them? "'We will do as you say.' And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, "'So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor "'who does not keep this promise. "'So may he be shaken out and emptied.' And all the assembly said, "'Amen,' and praise the Lord." And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also... "'persevered in, uh, in the work on this wall, "'and we acquired no land, "'and all my servants were gathered there for the work. "'Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, "'Jews and officials, besides those who came to us "'from the nations that were around us. "'Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day "'was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, "'and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. "'Yet for all this, I did not demand "'the food allowance of the governor.' because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Now, when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although at that time I had not yet set up the doors in the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, come, let us meet together at the very difficult place name in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner, in the same way Sambalat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. Now the king will hear of these reports, so now come, let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, no such thing as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, Their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now I went into the house of Shemiah, the son of Deliah, a son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because of Tobiah and Samballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember, Tobiah and Samballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Nadiah and all the rest of the peoples who wanted to make me afraid. So the war was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days. And when our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent letters to Tobiah, and to Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was son in law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, and his son Jehonahan had taken the daughter of Mesh oh dear, I was going so well Meshelahum, the son of Bechariah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. One of the challenges I think in reading uh, historical books in the Bible is that they're not always in strict chronological order. I guess if you were writing Nehemiah's book you might write it in chronological order. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Although I notice actually not many movies go like that anymore, do they? They all kind of jump around, so perhaps we're, we're used to it by now. But Nehemiah five and six are not really arranged chronologically, they're rather arranged thematically. So if you glance down at your Bibles, turn back to chapter 5. In chapter 5, verses 1 to 13, you've got an introduction to how the people were treated during the building work by the wealthy Jews in the region before Nehemiah gives an overview of his 12 years of governor, before then returning in chapter 6 to the story of the building work, but here collecting up the stories of the personal opposition that Nehemiah faced before the war was finished in chapter 6, verse 15, in only 52 days, presumably 52 days From the work starting in chapter 3. Now, my plan this evening is just really to split the passage into two parts, chapter 5 and chapter 6, look at each part, and then just consider together what the applications are for us this evening. So let's start uh, with chapter 5. It seems in the opening five verses that the people have three different complaints, complaints which lead them to a great outcry in verse 1, a cry that's been made by both the men and the women, and in a way that echoes back to the cry made by God's people when they're enslaved by the Egyptians in Moses' day. Anyway, there are three complaints come through, don't they? One, we have big families which are hard to feed if you're working on the wall all the time, verse two. Back in chapter four, Nehemiah seems to have instructed those working on the wall to stay in Jerusalem, both for safety and effectiveness in the rebuilding work, That obviously means that farm work wasn't happening and people were getting hungry, especially those with lots of mouths to feed. It's no mean feat, is it? Feeding a crowd of hungry children. Secondly, the second complaint is because they're not farming and because there's a shortage of food, there's a famine, they are having to mortgage their farms and their property to get the money to buy grain in verse 3. So there is an economic crisis as well, which we may know something of too. Thirdly, and finally, they are being charged taxes that they can't afford, we may know something of that soon as well, by Jewish leaders in the region which they're struggling to pay without selling their kids into slavery. It's probably none of us have to do that. Verses four and five. So here you have it, don't you? Jewish local leaders are treating their brothers and sisters in a way that makes them look, theologically look, like the Egyptians, right? So All of a sudden, the Jewish leaders look like the Egyptian slave masters. And that is not a good look in Bible terms, is it? And what is Nehemiah's response? Well, it's in verse 6, isn't it? Nehemiah is what? Very angry. So he calls these Jewish officials to what he calls a great assembly at the end of verse 7. Effectively, this is a giant court, isn't it? He gets all the people together and uh, makes them effectively the jury. And he accuses these officials three times of exacting, literally sort of compelling payment, forcing people to pay, especially the payment of interest in verse 7 and verse 10. Now, that's significant. So if you look down at verse 7 and 10, the exacting interest is significant because three times in the Old Testament law, in the first five books of uh, the Old Testament, God's people are forbidden from taking any interest from their fellow Jews. And here Nehemiah is saying, listen, this is what's going on here, guys. This is, this is not you just kind of navigating the tax laws and, and trying just to be honorable. This is you exacting interest from God's people. This is you breaking the law, he says. And what happens? Well, they're stunned, aren't they, into a guilty silence in verse 8. They are caught, they are tried, and they are convicted, and probably quite afraid as well, I would imagine, of the great assembly and what was about to happen to them. In the end, what do they do? Well, they return the slaves and stop charging taxes in verse 12, which presumably is the only thing open to them as an option. And Nehemiah shakes out his garment in public. Uh, I think probably as a kind of demonstration, listen, there is nothing in my pockets. I have taken nothing from you. Let me shake it out. There is nothing here. I've stolen nothing from you. Case closed. Interestingly, though, it's not the end of the chapter though, is it? Because in verses 14 to 19, you then have a sort of scan over his 12 years as governor and effectively giving you a a commentary on his own leadership. And I think what you've got here is, you know, this is the Jewish leaders behaving like Egyptian slave masters. And here is Nehemiah acting very, very differently. So notice the contrast uh, to how these Jewish leaders have been behaving. He points out that in his 12 years as governor, he never took the money he was entitled to. He never took, he never took the food allowance. And while he ate well, he did you know he ate all those sheep and birds and everything, he ate with 150 other people around the table, which thats a lot of people, isn't it? Um, eating with him, who is feeding out of his own pocket in verse 17. He ends, doesn't he, with a prayer that the Lord might remember, that he might see that heart and reward him for it in verse 18. Now, I think the key to understanding this section is in the contrast between verse 9 and verse 15. In verse 9 and verse 15, you are given windows into the motive behind the Jewish leaders and behind Nehemiah. So, here's the contrast, the Jewish leaders and Nehemiah. What is the difference between their motives? The distinction. Let me have a look. Let me read these verses to you. So, I said, verse 9, the thing that you are doing is not good Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? over okay, in verse 15. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily rations 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so. Why? Because of the fear of God. In other words, to put it in a slightly different way, The safety of God's people is related to the fear of the Lord amongst the leaders. If the leaders don't fear the Lord, the people are unsafe. If the leaders fear the Lord, the people are safe. Leaders who do not fear the Lord, who do not remember that ultimately they stand before him, those leaders will be motivated by self-interest, which easily falls into the exploitation of people in their care. That's exactly what you see in the first half of chapter 5 can swap it around again They can't you? It means that you can tell what someone thinks about God by the way they treat people in their care, especially those who they're in a position to exploit or cause harm. You know, if you're at school, how do you spot a Christian student at school? I don't think it's so much necessarily by whether they go to church on the weekend but you can tell someone who's a Christian by the way they treat the other people at school who nobody else has any time for. How do they treat the people who are considered uncool, outsiders? Do they treat them with a respect and a kindness even when it costs them something? You you might not be able to tell the Christian at work by the person who opens the door for the boss, because everybody would do that, right? But the one who engages with those beneath them in the hierarchy The person who cleans the office. They aren't afraid to do the jobs that no one else notices. Now, of course, that runs all the way through the scriptures, isn't it? In Matthew 25, there's that startling proclamation by the Lord Jesus when he tells the disciples that the criteria of final judgment will be what? How did you treat those who had nothing? The hungry, the sick, the imprisoned saying that people will be shocked to be excluded from heaven on the final day because their hard hearts towards God were seen in an unwillingness to reach out to those in need around them. Probably better to put it that way. Demonstrates what you really believe about God. It's what James says in James 1 when he tells the church that acceptable religion is what? Anyone know? Yes, excellent. How you treat orphans and widows. why why would that be acceptable religion? That's such a weird thing to say, isn't it? It's not because good works like that pays for our sin. He said just a few verses before that that the gospel is implanted in our hearts and saves us. It's the good news of the Lord Jesus that saves us. But if you want to know whether you believe the good news about the Lord Jesus, look at how you treat orphans and widows, those in James's day who had absolutely nothing and no means of providing for themselves. been uh, reading a book called Healing the Divides this week. It's about unconscious racism in evangelical churches like ours, where orthodox statements of faith are undermined by thoughtless adoptions of the culture's prejudices and preferences. It's a really, really fascinating book. And it's this absence, isn't it, of genuine fear of the Lord that works its way out into how we treat people in our culture who no one else looks out for. An absence of fear of the Lord that Nehemiah is talking about leads to that kind of going with the flow, doesn't it, of how we treat uh, particularly minority ethnic groups in that book he was talking about. Now, of course, it'd be wrong just to end there, wouldn't it? Because here Nehemiah is a signpost not simply to how we should live, but also to how the Lord Jesus did live. The one who, out of reverential Trinitarian love and perfect fear of his father, is a friend of sinners. You and I are the lowly outcasts, aren't we? Treated kindly by the Lord Jesus because he loves his father. So the Lord Jesus was found not in the palaces of the rich but in the company of the poor and the outcast. He spoke to the woman at the well. He spoke to the woman caught in adultery. He moves towards you and me. So much so that throughout the gospel we are like these guests at the table of Nehemiah, aren't we, in verse 17? Uh, We're like the citizens relieved of their taxes in verse 15 because Nehemiah is being like God's king, Jesus, pouring out himself for the sake of others, which ultimately Christ does on the cross. The opposite, isn't he? Jesus is the opposite of the Jewish tyrants. Isn't he? They exact interest, making them sell themselves. Jesus gives himself, paying it in his own blood, that we might not be enslaved but go free. Praise Christ for that. Chapter 6 then, moving on. Chapter 6 is themed around the continued opposition that Nehemiah fell and Geshem ask him to come to the plain of Ono. Anyone asks you to go to the plain of Ono, you say, Oh no, yeah, exactly. It's a giveaway, isn't it? Nehemiah doesn't go telling them in verse 3 that he is doing a far too important job to hang out in a plane called Ono with a couple of people who he suspects would kill him if he went there, which, of course, is exactly what they intended to do. So, verse 5, they try a slightly different tack on their fifth request. This time, they are cunning enough not just to ask Nehemiah on his own, but to write an open letter, an open letter as in a letter that everybody is reading along the way. It's like a postcard, yeah? You realize that if you write a postcard to someone, everybody in the Royal Mail have read it before it gets there, yeah? That's the idea. You you've read it out loud. So they say, listen, in this open letter, we know, Nehemiah, that you want to be the king. That's what's been said. You want to be the king, and you're going to lead a rebellion from the city. What does he say? Well, look down at verse six, what does happens next. He says, and it was written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem also uh, also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're rebuilding the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now, come, let us take counsel together, a.k.a. come and let us kill you. Then I sent to him, saying, No such thing as you, have, uh, as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands." Must have been, an, I mean, I know we just read over it simply, don't we? But must have been an awful accusation for Nehemiah to face. We've, we've seen throughout the book, haven't we, at considerable cost to himself, and now at considerable cost to himself as he gives himself to the building work, he is pouring himself out for the good of God's people, and he is being accused of self-interest and of being trying to make himself a king and leading a rebellion. But verse 9 shows you, doesn't it, he's not put off. I, I think probably... The footnote in the SV captures what's going on here. Nehemiah says that their attempt to weaken his hands will actually work to strengthen him. I think that's probably what's going on. The O God in verse nine is actually not there in the original. I think really the contrast is they're trying to weaken him but actually by God's help, it will strengthen him. But Sambalat isn't Nehemiah's only opponent. Shemaiah is closer to home, although it turns out that Sambalat and Tobiah have hired him, doesn't it? According to verse 13. And he invites Nehemiah not to meet him in the ominous-sounding plain of Ono, but this time to meet them in the temple, suggesting that the temple is a great place for you to hide from those who are trying to take your life, which is a kind of admission, isn't it, that Samballot was trying to take his life. Now, Nehemiah's answer to this is brave. He says that he has no intention of running away, in verse 11. And he sees right through this invitation to go to the temple, which he knows will get turned on him because he's not supposed to be in the temple, because he's not allowed to be in the temple as a non-Levite. Then this little section ends with a sort of narrative prayer from Nehemiah in verse 14 when he calls upon the Lord to act and judge over those, act as judge over those who have acted against him. In the end, though, the wall is finished and Tobias uh, links to various different people in Judah also come out. Turns out that Tobiah is seemingly not so concerned about the walls of Jerusalem or the honor of Persian kings. He's more concerned with holding on to the influence that he's bought over lots of different people in Jerusalem. And he's concerned that Nehemiah completing the walls and the city being secure will undermine his position, uh, an influence that he is determined to keep. In a way, it's, it's an odd chapter, isn't it? themed around these various different oppositions that he's faced, yet ultimately ending with this amazing achievement of accomplishing the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem in little over two months. When does a city authority do anything that big in that shorter space of time? It's amazing, isn't it, that Nehemiah has gathered the people to do that. And as Nehemiah says in verse 16, that is not due to his skill, is it? It's due to the help of our God. And actually, the help of God in it has been seen by everybody around them as well. People look at it and go, isn't it amazing what God is doing through Nehemiah as the walls have been rebuilt in under two months? Now, what do you think we're to make of all of this? What is the point of Nehemiah 6? I'll just have a sip of water to add suspense, but also to help me say the rest of it. Well, I don't think you have to read much of the Bible, do you, to know that it is the consistent experience of God's servants that they are opposed, both from inside the people of God and outside. That God's mission to establish his people, to build his church, to proclaim the gospel in the world, succeeds despite the fact that it costs his servants dearly. And I think we can be even more specific than that, can't we? We can drill down into Nehemiah 6 and and say that it seems to be that this opposition is mostly from people who fear a loss of power in the success of God's church and his project to build his people. So Sambala and Tobiah both seem to be staring down the barrel of a loss of influence if Nehemiah's plan to rebuild the wall succeeds. Sambala is a local leader who will no longer presumably be so influential. if Jerusalem is rebuilt, and Tobiah seems to be a Jew who's trying to purchase a status among the Jewish people after not being able to prove his ancestry back in the book of Ezra. So both of them are willing to do... Whatever it takes to say whatever it takes to divert Nehemiah and the people, even to trick him into sin in order to stop him carrying on with the work. And so it's the same today. Those who are leading churches are especially vulnerable, aren't they, to being misunderstood, misrepresented by those who want to retain power and influence in the church. The Apostle Paul, if you read the New Testament, he is constantly defending his reputation among those who considered him either too weak or too strong eventually being arrested in the temple on the false accusations of bringing a Gentile in. Timothy is working in Ephesus and he's told by Paul, don't let people look down on you because you're young. Why does he have to say that? Well, because people will look down on him because he's young. People in the church will look down on Timothy as the leader in the church. Paul fears, doesn't he, that older members might work hard to unpick his authority. Oh, we don't want this young man leading. Well, that will undermine our authority in the church. Titus in Crete is told to brace himself for opposition. Be prepared to rebuke sharply those who hook themselves up to myths and try to turn people away from the truth. Listen, listen, Titus, you're going to be teaching this thing and these people over here will be trying to hook people away from what you're teaching to follow them instead. Beware of that, he says. Each of the seven churches in Revelation are facing this kind of trouble, being told, aren't they, to stand firm, to stay pure, to not give up. In Acts 20, speaking to the Ephesian elders on the beach, Paul tells them that wolves will come in from their own number and devour the flock. Even Paul's most positive letter, the letter of the Philippians that we've been looking at in our connect groups, the progress of the gospel is hampered by what? Selfish ambition and rivalry in the church, envy. Of course, this is not meant to drive God's servants to despair, is it? Rather, like Nehemiah, it's meant to make us at labor, Hard amongst uh, God's people and trust Him instead, working for the glory that comes from Him and not from people, trusting like Nehemiah in verse 14 that God will sort it out. I leave that with you, Lord. I'm going to press on with the work. I've uh, just coming towards the end of the two volume biography of George Whitfield. George Whitfield, have you heard of George Whitfield? Morris has heard of George Whitfield, which I expected. Anyone down here and heard George Whitfield. George Whitfield, if you've never heard of him, was a great preacher in the 18th century revival, and uh, he uh, he had a kind of squint, so all the pictures that are drawn of him look kind of funny. You can find him on Wikipedia later. He preached to crowds of thousands and thousands of people up and down the country, and in the U.S. as well, and literally thousands of people were converted through his preaching ministry. He uh, alongside John Wesley, was involved in the starting of the Methodist movement, although he and John Wesley didn't really see kind of eye to eye on a number of theological issues, particularly God's sovereignty and salvation. And John Wesley was really quite critical of George Whitfield. even though George Whitfield said that he wouldn't publicly stand against John Wesley and he would support um, his ministry. Um, yet still, John Wesley, at a number of occasions, wrote and preached against George Whitfield. And towards the end of his life, he wrote this in a letter to a friend. Listen to this. This is uh, astonishing. God be praised for the many strippings I've met with. Now listen, this is an old letter. That doesn't mean what you think it might mean. The many strippings as in tearing downs that I've had. It's good for me that I have been supplanted, as in kind of overtaken, pushed down to one side. It's good for me that I've been supplanted despised, censored, maligned, judged by and separated from my nearest, dearest friends. By this I have found the faithfulness of him who is the friend of friends, and to be content that he, to whom all hearts are open and all desires are known, now sees and will let all see hereafter the uprightness of my intentions toward all mankind. I think that's Nehemiah, isn't it? I think that's exactly what he's saying in verse 14. Remember, Tobiah and Samballot, oh my God, I leave all this with you, Lord. I leave all this with you according to the things that they did and also the prophetess Nadiah and all the rest of the peoples who wanted to make me afraid. Lord, you deal with it, please. I'm not going to. I'm going to stick with the friend of friends. I guess I think the point of chapter 6 is that we shouldn't be surprised. Don't be surprised if serving in church, serving in Christian union at school, leading in the youth ministry means that people at times will misunderstand you or misrepresent you or try and divert you. Knowing ultimately, actually, that you can leave all of that with the Lord and that whatever is being accomplished will ultimately be because he has been behind it, not because you have been behind it. What is accomplished is with the help of our God, as Nehemiah puts it. But of course, again, this opposition of God's people, especially of the leaders of God's people, is seen ultimately not in you or I or in the Apostle Paul or Timothy or Titus or even George Whitfield, but is seen where? In the Lord Jesus. He was opposed, wasn't he? He was misunderstood. He was hated. And he was even killed by those who were jealous for his power, weren't they? They were scared by what they thought they would lose and envious of his crowds. And yet still as Jesus is opposed and killed, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And God's plan of salvation is remarkably accomplished. Not actually just the building of a wall in 52 days, which is incredible, right? But by the defeating of sin, death, and the devil in three days as he rises from the dead. What remarkable truth. His opponents sought to make his hands weaker but in God they got what? Stronger. No. So Jesus won the victory. So now for you and I we find just as it was for the Lord Jesus, just as it was for Nehemiah, for the Apostle Paul for Timothy, for Titus, for George Whitfield, that the way up to glory is the way down in suffering. It always has been and it always will be And so we need to pray for the Lord's strength to keep going, that many might see that what is accomplished has been done so, not by our strength, but with the help of our God. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it would seem rather nice to us if Church life and ministry life was just easy and plain sailing and looked on by others as being glorious and brilliant, but we read your word and we read these chapters in Nehemiah and we find that's not the case at all, and so we pray that you would make us willing to be like Nehemiah to realize that the road to glory is the road down to suffering, that we might be willing to take up our cross and follow the Lord Jesus. Thank you that the Lord Jesus is the greater Nehemiah who didn't just suffer the false accusations but even suffered death itself that we might be forgiven. And Lord, we pray that in that kind of joyful fear of you, we might also treat those around us with great gentleness and respect. We pray, please, that our church might be marked by a care for those that others care very little for pray that you might help us to live those lives tomorrow in the places that you put us. That you might help us to pay attention to those who others don't pay any attention to at all. And that this great fear of you might be lived out in our lives in love for others. And we pray and ask for your help in that. In Jesus' name. Amen.